This Torah 101 podcast is dedicated in loving memory and Li'ilu Nishmas, Zev Wolf Schiffman, whose yard site is today, the seventh day of Adar, the day that this podcast is going to be released. This was sponsored by his Jacobovitz and Rubenstein grandchildren. We thank them for the support of the Torah 101 podcast. And if you would like to support Torch, if you would like to support the Torah 101 podcast, please email me. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Last time we began discussing the eighth principle of the Maimonides, the principle of faith, namely that the Torah is divine. And what we discovered is that this is not a simple question of who wrote the Torah. It's more of the tantalizing question of what does it even mean to have a divine Torah, to have a corpus that comes from God. To continue this subject, I think it's also going to be more introductory because it's going to cover a lot of elements of this critical and this vast subject. I want to read to you the Ramban's introduction to Torah. So, of course, the word Ramban, it gets confused with Rambam. And over the course of the centuries, they've accentuated different parts of that word to differentiate the two. So you have the Rambam, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, Maimonides, Ramban, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, Nachmanides. These are two of the most important sages of the medieval era. Uh, when the Ramban is 10 years old, the Rambam dies. The Rambam's 13 principles, and then you have the Ramban, one of the most important, significant Jewish personalities of the 13th century, if not the most important Jewish personality of the 13th century. His years are 1194 to 1269. He is a towering, titanic figure. He writes commentaries on all Talmud. And of course, he writes a magisterial super commentary on the Torah. And each one of the books begins with an introduction that he writes to that particular book. And as an introduction to the book of Genesis, he writes an introduction to all of Torah, which deals with the Torah at large. And it deals with a lot of the fundamental questions that are relevant to our discussion. And I thought it would be fitting for us to continue our immersion into the important subject of the divinity of the Torah. It's important, I think, for us to also see what the Ramban says And that, too, will be able to lay a strong foundation for the questions and the subjects and the study that will ensue in this eighth principle, the principle of the divinity of the Torah. So what we're going to do today, we're going to read through this Ramban, and we're going to share some of the insights as we encounter them. So he begins his introduction to Torah by asking the question, who wrote this book? And he tells us, Moshe, our teacher, wrote this book, the entire book of Torah, from the mouth of God. So this is something which is unanimously agreed upon. Everyone agrees. Moshe is the writer, but not the author. He writes what the Almighty tells him to write. And then he continues, when did Moses write this? When did Moses write the actual written Torah? It's most likely that he wrote much of it at Sinai. And he quotes a verse, a verse in the end of Parshish Mishpatim, chapter 24 of Exodus. Alei, alei, hahara, God tells Moses, ascend to me on the mountain, 
and I will give you the stone tablets and the Torah and the mitzvah that I wrote to instruct the Jewish people. What does that mean? A lot of things that Moshe is getting. He's getting the stone tablets. Well, that's the actual tablets that contain the Ten Commandments. And the mitzvah. Well, the mitzvah refers to the mitzvahs of the Torah, the positive mitzvahs and the negative mitzvahs. What are the 248 categories of things that the Torah instructs us to do? What are the 365 negative categories of things that the Torah requires us to refrain, to refrain from transgressing? That's the mitzvah. So when it says the Torah, that is a reference to the actual text of the written Torah from the first words of Genesis, from the Bereshis, the first word that begins the Torah, up to that juncture in the story, the middle of the book of Exodus. And therefore, Moses goes up to heaven and he receives, of course, the, the tablets, but he also receives the knowledge of the Mitzvahs. And then he comes down and he writes down, he inscribes what they might have told him to write down from the beginning of Genesis all the way through uh, most of Exodus. And at the end of the 40-year period between the Exodus and the death of Moses, right before he's about to die, in the end of Deuteronomy we read that God tells Moshe, okay, now it's time to finish the whole Torah. So he fills in all the parts that are missing from where he finished at Sinai up to the end of Deuteronomy, and then when he was done, when he's about to pass, he has these scrolls that he delivers to the tribes of Israel, and there's one super scroll that's kept in the ark, and that's the one that's being used as scrolls to copy, to make other scrolls of of Torah from. It says the Ramban that this is in accordance with the opinion of the Talmud that the Torah was written in, intermittently, it was written sequentially, scroll by scroll. So it was written over the course of, of, of 40 years. Whereas there is a second opinion of the Talmud that says, no, for the course of 40 years, Moses did not write any parts of the written Torah, but at the end of the 40 years, he wrote the entirety from the beginning on till the end. So these are the two opinions, and it's the Ramban says it's most likely that he actually wrote it, you know, partially uh, at Sinai, and then he finished the rest of it at the end of the 40 years. But regardless, interesting question. Shouldn't there be a preface to the Torah? Shouldn't the Torah begin the very first verse should attribute Moshe's role? Shouldn't the first verse of the Torah, instead of saying, Beratius, in the beginning God created heaven and earth, shouldn't the first verse read as follows? And God spoke to Moses all these words saying, that should be the very first verse of the Torah. If God is telling Moses, write the Torah, well, then we should know that going in. We only meet Moses in chapter 2 of Exodus. The entire book of Genesis, it doesn't say the word Moses even once. Yet, you're telling me, says I'm telling you that Moses is the one who's the, who's the writer. He's not the author, but he's the writer of the entire Torah from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Deuteronomy. Why is it not attributed at the beginning? What exactly is Moshe's role? in writing the Torah. So he explains. But the matter is that Moses was writing it without any attribution because Moses did not write the Torah as if he's speaking in first person. He is not like Ezekiel who says God spoke to me saying. He is not like Jeremiah who says that the word of God came to me. Oh no. 
Moshe's writing, the chronicles of the early generations, and even his own story and the, the episodes of his life, all that he is writing in third person. And therefore, he doesn't say God spoke to me saying, he says, Vayedaber Elohim El Moshe, God spoke to Moshe, to Moshe, and he said to him. And therefore, Moshe is not mentioned until he is born, and he is writing it as the narrator, but it's all in third person, not in first person. And then says the Ramban, well, what about Deuteronomy? You open up Deuteronomy, and it seems like in Deuteronomy, Moshe is speaking in first person. And I pleaded with God at that time. Moshe is speaking apparently in first person. I prayed to God. Don't you think that that Deuteronomy, at least, is written in first person? He says, yes. However, what is what is the what are the opening words? What are the what are the opening verses of the book of Deuteronomy? These are the words that Moshe spoke to all of Israel. And therefore, if you read the very first verse, it's telling you this is a quote from Moshe. And therefore, the actual quote are the words of Moshe, but the, the, the way the, the, the scripture is structured is that it's just citing Moshe. And therefore, because it's attributing it at the beginning, it's telling you this is a quote of Moshe. It's just going to give you the verbatim quote of Moshe. And of course, Moshe spoke in first person, but that's not how the Torah is presenting it. It's presenting it in third person, but it's just pulling a quote in the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, so that's why the Torah does not begin with a verse saying these are the words that God spoke to Moses. However, why indeed is it written in that fashion? Why not? Why is Moshe not writing in first person? Why is he writing in third person? And here's where he drops the bomb. The reason why the Torah was written in this fashion is because the Torah preceded the world. And it preceded, certainly, the birth of Moses. And then he quotes a very intriguing teaching of the Talmud. As we discover in our tradition that the Torah was written before God with black fire on top of white fire, and therefore Moshe is the equivalent to a scribe who is copying from an ancient book. And therefore he's writing it the way he sees it in the, so to speak, ancient book, the way he sees it in this primordial Torah, this Torah of black fire on top of white fire, it precedes the world, it precedes Moshe, and therefore Moshe is not writing, so to speak, a new book, he's copying, so to speak, an old book. So there's two very important conclusions from this section in the Ramban. Number one, of course, idea of the Torah being divine, God's the author, Moshe is just, Moshe is just the scribe, he's just writing it, and God conveys Moshe to write it, and Moshe is not writing from his own volition, and like we mentioned last time, the Talmud tells us that if you claim that Moshe is the author of the Torah, and even if you say that, that God's the author of the whole Torah, with the exception of one verse that God did not write, or God did not author, but Moshe authored himself, behold, you are someone who is disgracing the Torah, and you lose your portion in eternity. It's that severe. Moshe is not the author by Jewish tradition. God's the author. Moshe is the one who just writes it. 
But we find another another insight. This is a very deep, powerful insight. The Torah was extant before Sinai, before creation even, but in a different format, black fire atop of white fire. There are two iterations of Torah. There's the Torah of the heaven, the Torah of the black fire atop of white fire, the Torah that preceded the world. And then there's the Torah that we have, the Torah of the earth, the Torah of terra firma, that we can understand. It's not black fire written on top of white fire. Maybe it's black ink written on top of, of a white scroll, of a white, white parchment. But there's different kinds, different iterations of Torah. One of the most tantalizing questions that hopefully, please God, will cover is how exactly does a heavenly Torah become the earthly Torah? How does this black fire on top of white fire transpose into the Torah that we have? You open up the Torah that we have, the written Torah, the oral Torah, you find the following question. Suppose my ox walks into your field and gores your cow to death. That we know for sure. So obviously I have to pay for the damage inflicted by my property onto your property. But then we have this other wrinkle. This is again from the Talmud. Suppose we go to the backyard and we hear some thrashing and we discover that my ox has gored your cow to death. But next to your deceased cow, we find a baby calf that's also dead. Oh no, what a tragedy, right? So I say, listen, you know, your cow had a baby, it was a stillborn, and then my ox came and doored your cow to death. I'm not responsible for the dead calf. That's your fault. Or it happened before my ox arrived. And you say, no, 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 no. My pregnant cow had a very healthy calf. Everything was supposed to be okay. And then comes along your ox, and your ox comes and gores my cow to death. And that caused the stillborn, I don't know if that's even the right word, the still cow, to be born. The still calf. And therefore, you're not only responsible to pay for my dead cow, you're responsible to pay for my dead calf too. That's a question of the Talmud. But that's a question that's only relevant in our version of Torah. If you go to the heavenly Torah, black fire top of white fire, the essence of the Torah is the same, the holiness of the Torah is the same, the origin of the Torah is the same, but it's being couched in heaven in very heavenly terms, in very spiritual terms, and somehow that gets transposed to an earthly Torah, and the same holiness is going to be speaking about very, very different applications. The veneer, the exterior, the garment of the Torah is going to talk about very earthly things. How does that transposition happen is a very interesting, and it's a very advanced, I may add, fascinating subject that hopefully we'll investigate. But again, there's a very powerful insight. The Torah is going to exist in two planes. We have the heavenly Torah, Moshe goes up and he encounters the heavenly Torah and his process of conveying and writing and funneling it, being the conduit to give that to the Jewish people, is going to give us the same Torah but couched in very different terms. So I want to give you just maybe a taste of what that looks like. We have, of course, the first tablets and the second tablets. Moshe goes up to heaven, spends 40 days, comes back with a set of tablets that he shatters. He goes up a second time for 40 days and 40 nights again, this is just to calm the Almighty's, so to speak, anger. 
and to gain, for, to gain forgiveness for the Jewish people. And then he goes up a third time for 40 days and 40 nights to get the second set of tablets. We say that the first set of tablets is the heavenly Torah. The second set of tablets is the earthly Torah. The first set of tablets, the tablets themselves were crafted and etched by God. The second set of tablets are crafted by Moshe and etched by God. By the first set of tablets, the nation is transformed. The nation experiences prophecy. The nation, we would say philosophically, is being changed into being like angels, or as it's known in Jewish philosophy, like Adam before his sin. After the golden calf, the nation's demoted and they no longer can access the heavenly angelic Torah, the Torah of black fire on top of white fire. The second that's been shattered, so to speak, their connection to that has been severed. They have the same tablets also etched by God, but now it's speaking to humans. It's speaking to post-sin nation. And that's the other variety of the Torah that we have. It's a very, very advanced subject. In fact, the Talmud says that had the nation been privy to the heavenly Torah, the Torah written with black fire on top of white fire, we would have never died. The idea of us living in this format that that death, that our demise is inevitable, that's all a consequence of Adam's sin. And there was a time where we reversed that at the original Sinai experience, and thus we would have had access to the heavenly Torah, and we would have been like the angels, we wouldn't have been condemned necessarily to die. And there is this transposition where that Torah is going to be somehow repurposed or reconfigured into the earthly Torah. Very, very advanced subject. Hopefully, we will talk more about this distinction of these two Torahs and how they relate. The Ramban is now going to pivot to the next question that he wants to talk about. So again, we have the first insights, the Torah is divine, and the Torah exists in different iterations. And that, of course, is, is, is opening up the subject to us. The Rabbam now pivots to the second question, or to the next question that he wants to discuss, and then he's going to discuss at length. The question is, what is included in the Torah? So he begins by telling us that the beginning of the Torah, it's the discussion of the creation of heaven and earth and all of their legions. What does that mean? It's going to describe the essence and the nature of everything that was created both the spiritual things, the lofty things, and the lowly things. And included in that is what's called Masemakrava and Masebracious. This is shorthand for the hidden Kabbalistic insights of the Torah. Not only that, everything that is part of the tradition of the sages of trying to understand the hidden parts of Torah, that too it's part of what's written in the written Torah. Moreover, all the wisdom inherent in this world, the wisdom that governs inanimate matter, animate matter, nonverbal beings, and verbal beings, all these four quadrants of wisdom, all that was conveyed to Moshe. All that was written in the Torah in some fashion, either explicitly 
or via some hint. Very deep insights here. He'll elaborate about this in a second. Everything about wisdom, the wisdom that relates to everything that is a creation. There's only one thing, there's only one entity that's not a creation. That's the creator. That's the Almighty. All the other wisdom, everything that relates to everything that relates to creations, all that's included in the Torah, all that was given to Moshe, and all that is actually written in some way or hinted in some way in the actual words of the Torah. And then he gives more context to this. He quotes our sages. Our sages in the Talmud tells us there's 50 gates of wisdom. And all of them, with the exception of one of them, were given to Moshe. There's 50 different components of all of wisdom. Each one is called a gate of wisdom. And only one of them did Moshe not know. And he elaborates, well, what does that even mean? It means that you could break up all of the creations into 49 different categories. And the 50th gate, that's the wisdom that relates not to a creation, but to a creator, and that Moshe didn't understand. That was even beyond Moshe. That's not included in the Torah. That's not included in, the, in again, the collective knowledge of the Torah that Moshe had. That's written in some fashion in the actual written Torah, but of course in, in ways that are very hidden for us. That part, that 50th element, component of wisdom was not given to Moshe because that's all about God. But what was given to Moshe? What was written in the Torah? So he explains. You have the inanimate matter. That's included. That's one gate of wisdom. And then you have the things that sprout from the ground, and that's another gate of wisdom. And then you have the trees and the animals and the birds and the creepy crawlers and the fish. Each one of these to understand everything about these these things, these creations, it's another gate of wisdom. And then to understand humanity, to understand everything there is to know about humanity, that is also a gate of wisdom. And he quotes some citations from the Midrash that talk about someone who actually knows this gate. If you actually understand, if you're able to, if you're able to draw from the Torah, the gate of wisdom to unlock the secrets behind humanity, you know everything. You know if someone's a thief, you know if someone's an adulterer, you know if someone, how they behave, if they're potentially a murderer, everything you know about these people. And by the way, parenthetically, Historically, we say, well, we know that the Torah sages were able to read people like they were an open book. For example, the Talmud tells that the great Rabban Gamliel, who was the head of the academy at Yavne before he was deposed and before, of course, he was reinstated, he would vet potential students and he had a rule. If your innards are different than your outer presentation of yourself – you're disqualified to come study in our institution. And of course, when he was deposed, that rule was discarded and anyone was allowed in. But the question is, how does Rabbi Gamliel determine if someone is internally the same the way they present themselves? It's because he had access to this wisdom. He was able to draw from the Torah the gate of wisdom that tells us everything you need to tell about people. So he would have this this knowledge that we don't have because people could be, you know, we see people and we see their veneer, we see their exterior. 
we see their facade and they can trick us. They can present themselves as being very righteous, even though internally there's something corrosive about their character. We wouldn't be able to differentiate that because we don't have access to that wisdom. Rabbi Gamliel, the great Torah sage, he does have access to that wisdom. He is privy to that gate of wisdom and he knows everything about a person and he doesn't need to, uh, he doesn't need to guess. He's able to tell if they're a good candidate for the institution or not. The Arizal, more recent times, he knew everything about you. He would look at you. He would look at your forehead. He would look at the various wrinkles on your forehead and he would see everything about you, everything you did. He, he would know the future about you. He would know the past. He about to tell you which which person was your previous incarnation. And he was able to, again, ascribe a person's spiritual pedigree. Your soul used to inhabit this body in the most recent lifetime and it inhab- inhabited that body in the more recent r- lifetime. And by the way, what, what, what would he do for fun? They would walk around the Galilee and he would point out where every great sage was buried. He would just see some land says, oh, right over here, put a gravestone. Because right over here, this great sage is buried. Oh, and right over there, that great sage was buried. Put a gravestone over there. He would identify that. How would he know that? Because he had access to wisdom via Torah that we can't even fathom. And by the way, I'll tell you a story from modern times. My grandfather, blessed memory, 1938, he traveled to the city of Kamenetz. It's a city in Europe. But it housed the great yeshiva of Kamenetz, which was known more for its rosh yeshiva, its head of the yeshiva, a man by the name of Rabbi Baruch Ber Leibowitz. And my grandfather used to talk about his experience during this week that he, or weekend that he spent in Kamenetz in the environs of the great Rabbi Baruch Ber Leibowitz. But he said as follows. He said, of course, you know, after the prayer on Friday night and Shabbos prayer, all the students would want to go greet the rabbi to say good Shabbos to him. But the students advised them, if you are someone that recently had a seminal emission, don't go say good Shabbos to Rabbi Baruch Ber because he could see it. Don't go. He, he had access to that part of, of understanding the human condition and therefore that, that's what the students themselves it would advise the visitors, just be careful because he could see it right in your forehead. He knows, he knows, he knows what happened. Again, there's portions of wisdom that are inherent to the Torah that are completely beyond the, the, the simple superficial exterior of the Torah. There's depth and profundity that was given to Moshe. 49 out of 50 he got because 49 out of 50 gates of wisdom are creations and all of creation is found in the Torah. We mentioned last time. There's a famous teaching in, in, in the Kabbalah that the Almighty used the Torah as a blueprint for the world. And we know that if it's not in the blueprint, it's not in the building. If it's not in the plans, it's not in the finished product. If it's not in the Torah, it's not in this world. There's nothing in this world. There's nothing that's a creation that's not found in its, in the Torah. There's 49 of those 50 gates that are found in the Torah. Where is it written? Where is it all hidden? That's where things get a little bit dicey. And like we mentioned last time, the Torah is written in unusual language. It's not Hebrew. It's the holy language. 
and we spoke about the gematrias and other ways that things could be hidden, and the Rabban opens up new vistas into how the Torah can write things in a ways that are invisible to anyone besides the great Torah scholars. And he tells us, they're either written explicitly, I guess there's some stuff that are explicit, or they're hinted. They're hinted in the words, or in the gematrios, like we spoke about last time, the numerical values, or in the shapes of the letters. Sometimes, Letters are written are written differently. There's some letters that are big, some that are small. There's one letter that has a line going through it. There's some letters that could be that could be written differently, a little bigger, a little smaller. The lamid does it go like that? Does it go like that? What's the shape of the lamid? All those things to us, it, it'd be totally arbitrary. All these are hints. And then he adds the serifs of the letters. The jot and tittles of the letters, the little crownlets on top of the letters, to us, again, totally arbitrary, but on the more advanced levels of the Torah, on the mosaic levels of the Torah, and even the great sages of the, of the Mishnah and the Talmud, they understood what these things mean, meant. And he gives us the famous story about Rabbi Etiva. Talmud tells us the book of Menachos, page 29b. That when Moses ascended to heaven, he saw God writing a Torah scroll. And then he noticed something unusual about the letters. Certain letters had certain crownlets above the letters. There were little crowns on top of the letters. In fact, you look at the Torah scroll today, certain letters that have these little crowns that are on top of, of certain parts of the letters. And Moshe asks God, you're giving us the Torah. Do you need to embellish it with the crowns? Why do you even need to do that? What's the purpose of these crowns? What's the purpose of these seraphs, of these John Tittles, on top of the letters? And he tells him, well, there's going to be a sage in several generations who is going to deduce and derive mounds and mounds of Torah teachings from each seraph, from each crown, from each John and Tittle. And his name is the great Rabbi Akiva, the son of Joseph. He's going to be the one who's able to discern what the laws are from those letters. What it's opening our eyes to is the fact that there's all kinds of mysteries and and hidden messages that contain the wisdom for everything that's in the Torah. It's written in the Torah in a way that is not accessible to us unless we become a great scholar. And the paradigmatic example of that, the archetype of that, the exemplar of someone who's able to deduce from the written Torah all these hidden mysteries, that is, of course, Rabbi Akiva. When I read this in the Ramban, I remembered a story in the Talmud that I'm going to share. The Talmud, the book of Yavamas, page 16a, tells us that there was a dispute between the school of Shammai, the Academy of Shammai, the Academy of Hillel, with respect to Tsaras Habas. Now, what that means, I'll say it quickly, but I'm not going to elaborate because it's a little complicated. You have two brothers, one of them dies without any children. Then the second brother can marry the widow of the first brother. Well, what if his sister-in-law, i.e. the widow of his first bro- of his first brother, is a relative? You can't marry your relatives. Well, what if the first brother is married to two women? 
One of them is a relative of the second brother. And the other one is a regular woman who's not related at all. So, of course, the surviving brother cannot marry his relative, but can he marry the second wife who is not his relative, but is a co-wife with his relative? That's the subject matter of the beginning of the book of Yavamos. Fascinating. A study of Talmud that is so deep and so profound, if you just study that chapter of Talmud, you'll never have to question whether the Torah is divine. But anyhow, according to the Academy of Hillel, Saras Habas, which means the co-wife of the daughter, so Reuven and Shimon, two brothers, Reuven marries, marries Shimon's daughter, which is legal by Torah, by Torah rules. You can marry your niece. He marries his niece, Shimon's daughter, and he marries his second wife. He has two wives. Again, also legal by Torah standards. Today we don't do, today we don't do polygamy, but it technically would be legal in, in previous generations. Reuven dies without any children, and now Shimon, can he marry his daughter's co-wife, according to the Academy of Hillel, no. However, according to the Academy of Shammai, he would be allowed to. But of course, the ruling follows the Academy of Hillel. That's the background of this story. So, the story tells of one of the sages of the era. His name was Rabbi Dosa ben Harkinus. And the sages heard a rumor that this Rabbi Dosa ben Harkinus, he is someone who rules that Saras Habas, that the co-wife of the daughter, you're allowed to marry her. You're allowed to do the Leverite marriage, you're allowed to do Yibam to her. Ruvain, uh, I'm sorry, Shimon can marry his daughter's co-wife, that's his sister-in-law, via, via Ruvain. That's what they heard, that this old sage ruled like the Academy of Shammai. That's a problem. Because the consensus is following the Academy of Hillel, that that woman would be prohibited. So what do we do with this rogue rabbi who is apparently, or at least that's the rumor, he is professing, he's teaching that it's okay in accordance with the ruling of the Academy of Shammai. So what the sages do is they nominate three representatives to go discuss this matter with Rabbi Dosim and Arquinas. Let's send the three brightest, the three greatest sages of the era. Let, let them go on a fact-finding mission to find out what's actually going on. They go visit Rabbi Dosim and Arquinas, and he greets each one of these sages, and he puts them down on, on, on the, the way it's described, on a bed of gold. He obviously was very rich, and therefore he welcomes them in in a, in a very uh, dignified and, and, and regal fashion. And he's very excited to, to, to meet Rabbi Yoshua and Rabbi, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Elazar Nazario. And he meets Rabbi, Rabbi Akiva. The first time he met Rabbi Akiva, he's like, oh, you're the famous Rabbi Akiva. Oh my gosh, I heard so much about you. Your name reverberates from one end of the world to the other end of the world. There should be more like you amongst the children of Israel. So that he's finally sitting there and now it's time to investigate. But how are you going to investigate it? You're not going to say, well, we heard you rule like the Academy of Shammai. What's the deal? They're a little bit more tactful. So they start talking about, talking about matters of Torah, and eventually they're pushing the conversation closer and closer and closer to the subject of Leverite marriage and to this question of Saras Habas. Again, a very unusual case. Two brothers. One of them is married to his niece, and then he dies without any children. Can his surviving brother marry not his relative, not his daughter, but the other wife? So he says, well, that is a dispute amongst the Academy of Shammai and the Academy of Hillel. Shammai, the Academy of Shammai says it's okay. And the Kanye Hill says, it's not okay. Okay, so here's, here's the painter, right? And what's the halacha? 
which one of those two opinions does the halacha follow? Again, remember, they heard a rumor that he goes with the Academy of Shammai. And now they're actually going to ask him the question to find out what's the deal. So he says, well, the ruling is in accordance with the Academy of Hillel. They said, wait, wait a minute. We heard in your name that you are professing, you are teaching that the ruling is in accordance with the Academy of Shammai. And now you're telling us that the ruling is in accordance with the opinion of the Academy of Hillel. Which one is it? So he says to them, did you hear Dosa Ben Hartinus? Or did you just hear Ben Hartinus? Because his name was Rabbi Dosa Ben Hartinus. He's like, did you hear it was me specifically? Or did you just hear generically that the son of Hartinus rules in accordance with Shammai? And they say, you know what? We actually only heard the rumor that Ben Hartinus, no one mentioned Dosa. We just assumed it was you because you're the most famous son of Hartinus. But actually, we only heard it generically, the son of Hartinus. So he responds to him, aha, I know what happened over here. It's not me you're looking for. It's my brother. I have a brother, I have a brother who is devilish. His name is Yonasan, Yonasan Ben Artinus, and he's devilish. Why? Because he's a student of the Academy of Shammai. And be careful. You think I'm sharp. He's way sharper than me. Not only does he profess that the Academy of Shammai is correct, that marrying Tzara Sabas is okay, he has 300 incontrovertible proofs that he's right. Be careful. If you meet him, he is a ferocious Torah scholar and he'll be able to prove to you that his opinion is correct. So now they resolve the conflict, right? They know that this great this great sage, Rabbi Esmerikis, is not teaching in accordance with the, the, the Academy of Shammai, but now they know that his brother is a problem. So Talmud tells us that when they that when they left, even though initially when they came in, they came in as a group, the three sages together. When they left, they split up into into three different three different uh, contingencies. They didn't walk together. And the, the, then the sages on the commentaries say either because they didn't want to meet him as a group, because what happens if you meet him as a group? He's going to prove his point. And then you'll be forced to acknowledge his points. And if you have a quorum, you'll have to rule in accordance with the Academy of Shammai. And therefore they wanted to avoid meeting him as a quorum. Because if they would have two plus him, it would be a quorum of three. It would be enough to push the law. That's one opinion. Alternatively, they wanted to split up into, into three, so that way at least one of them will meet him. They'll, that'll raise the likelihood of some of them meeting him to hear what his proofs are. Anyhow, who meets him? Rabbi Akiva bumps into Yonasan Benartinus, the devilish young brother of Rabbi Dosa Benartinus. And it is on. They start arguing. Rabbi Akiva, of course, defending the opinion of the Academy of Hillel. And this other devilish uh, sage, Yonasan Benartinus, is trying to promote the opinion of the Academy of Shammai. And he brings him his proof. I have 300 incontrovertible proofs, right? And each one of, each one of them, Rabbi Tiva swatting them effortlessly. And is able to actually disqualify all 300 proofs and indeed restore the law unquestionably that the Academy of Hillel is correct that indeed Sarasabas is prohibited.
And then we read the following exchange. He says to him like this, Akiva, you think you're so special? Your name reverberates from one end of the world to the other end of the world? You indeed have achieved some degree, some modicum of distinction. You have a name. You have a famous name. But you should know you're no better than a shepherd of livestock. Seems like he's giving him some pretty biting criticism. You think you're special? You have a name? You have something, but you're really nothing better than a shepherd of livestock. And what does Rabbi Kiva respond? No, you're wrong. I did not even achieve the level of a shepherd of small animals, of sheep. Thus concludes the story. So, of course, there's a lot of germane aspects of the story uh, to, to our discussion. First of all, we see again that the depth of the Torah, a very obscure question, what to do with the co-wife of, of, a, of, a, of a daughter in, in this unusual case. He has 300 proofs. Where did he pull these proofs from? Again, more more advanced than the Torah that we're, we're used to. Rabbi Kiva is even greater than him. He's able to swat them away effortlessly and to restore the law. To restore the equilibrium, the law is in accordance with the economy of Hillel. But that last exchange seems like this devilish Yonasan ben Hartinus, he is name-calling Rabbi Akiva, you're no better than a shepherd of large animals. And he says, and Rabbi Akiva responds apparently in humility by saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm like a shepherd of small animals. I'm even, I'm even worse. The explanation of this Talmud I heard from my from my teacher, Rabbi Asharieli, there's a very deep message going on over here. We assume, because we're ignorant, that we know what Torah is. I've read all five books. I've read the Pentateuch. I'm an expert. That's what we may think. You know what? I've even read all the Rashis. I've even studied a little bit of Talmud. I basically have a handle on what Torah is all about. Torah is like the sea. The sea, the deeper that you get into the sea, the deeper you realize the sea is. You know, I, I always say that I've, I've, wa- I've walked into the Pacific Ocean. It was only up to my ankles. It's obviously, it's a mile long, but an inch deep, what they say. I could have walked to Japan if I wanted to. But of course, you take a few steps in, and now it's up to your knees. And you walk a little further, it's above your head. And the further and further you go in, the deeper you realize it is. Torah is like that. The deeper you immerse yourself in it, the deeper the more vast the Torah appears to you, the more you plumb its depths. That's what's, that, that, that's what's actually happening over here. Everyone's acknowledging the great Rabbi Tiva's stature in Torah. It's undeniable. The greatest of his era. Moshe is someone who's impressed by Rabbi Tiva. Comes along Yonah's son Ben-Hartinus, the devilish brother of Rabbi Dosa, and he says, yes, you're... Knowledge of Torah is great. You have achieved distinction. You have a name. But compared to what Torah really is, Torah is infinite. You're nothing more than a shepherd of large animals. What's Robert Kiefer's response? His response is not, I'm humble, I'm smaller. His response is, Torah is bigger. His response is, compared to what Torah really is, my relative knowledge is even smaller than what you think it is. I'm like the shepherd of Small animals, because Torah is ever more vast. Because you know what? I'm a great Torah scholar. I have a bigger picture. And the more you know, the more you realize how little you know in comparison to what Torah 
really is. Again, what we're discovering here is a new way to understand or to even to, to relate to the whole question of the divinity of the Torah. Everything's there. The 50 gates of wisdom, there's only one of them that's outside of Torah. Torah is a creation of God, and it is a creation that precedes all the other creations. Therefore, it's the blueprint. It's what the Almighty is using to create everything else, and therefore everything else, everything, the blueprint of everything else is found in the Torah. Everything besides for God. Moshe did not understand God fully. And all this is hinted in ways that we cannot fathom, right? He was able to deduce from every from every crown piles and piles of laws is a much more advanced connection to Torah than we have. And the Rabban elaborates at great length to talk about all the kinds of wisdom that were present in the past. He talks about Chistia. Chistia had a book of letters. In the book, it told about all the Olives in the Torah. Olives is the first letter of the Torah and all the bases in the Torah. And he adds, what makes it special is not just to know how many letters there are in the Torah, but to understand the hidden secrets, the very deep hidden secrets that are found in these letters. And he goes through a list, you know, the anatomical knowledge of Elihu in the book of Job, the chariot knowledge of Ezekiel, King Solomon's unfathomable knowledge of all areas of wisdom. Where did they know that? Where did they pick this all up? They picked this all up from the Torah itself. He talks about King Solomon. King Solomon had a book of medicine where he would tell you, you have this ailment, you eat this herb or this grass or this particular this particular ingredient is going to solve this in this particular dilemma. And the Talmud even says that this book was so powerful that anyone who was ever sick would just go to this book and take the prescribed medicine and you would be, you'd be healed right away. And the sages are worried people are not praying anymore. You're sick and you need, you need help, but you just go to Solomon's book. So they took all copies of the books and they hit him because they wanted people to pray. But where did Solomon get all this knowledge from? He got it all from the Torah. It talks about again, a verse in scripture that Solomon's wisdom exceeded all the people of the East and all the people of Egypt, all the wise people of Egypt. And it's all the magic, all the sorcery, all the inc- incantations that they knew. He knew it all, but he got it all from Torah. It talks about the planting of cucumbers, which is Talmudic shorthand or Torah shorthand for sorcery. Where did Solomon know all that stuff? Again, that is all from the Torah. And by the way, in modern times, there's a mo- there's modern equivalents to this. For example on the most uh, recent Jewish history podcast that I merited to host. I spoke about a great sage who passed away only around 60-some-odd years ago. His name is Rabbi Karelis. He was known universally as the Chazonish. He was someone who knew all the wisdom and all the math and all the physics and all the science and all the anatomy and all the pharmacology, and he got that all from Torah. He never read a book of medicine. He never studied a book of anatomy. He never took advanced physics or mathematics or astronomy, he got it all from the Torah, even in even in, in modern times. All wisdom, everything about everything with the exception of God, everything that's a creation is all found in the Torah. And it's even in the written Torah, but it's written in ways that unless we're experts, we cannot perceive. And by the way, I want to add another, another component to this. All of human history. There's a very famous line from the Gon of Vilna, the Vilna Gon. 
he says that all human history, everything that happens to you, is also found in the Torah. Where is written in the Torah? It's hidden. You can't find it. But all of human history is embedded somewhere on some dimension in Torah. So we talked about the Torah being divine. We talked about the two iterations of Torah. We spoke about all the wisdom coming from Torah. And the Ramban concludes with one more insight, one more grand dimension of Torah. And he begins, Od yesh biyadenu kabbalasha elmes. We also have in our hands a truthful Kabbalah. Kabbalah means a, a tradition. That all of Torah, the entire written Torah, is all names of God. That the letters, if you put the breaks between the letters in different places, you're going to spell out an unending list of names of God. And it gives an example. For example, the first three words of the Torah are Bereshis, Bara, Elohim. In the beginning, God created, or in the beginning of God's creation. You could put the breaks between the same letters in different places. You could read it as Berosh Yisbara Elohim. It's the same letters, but instead of Bereshis, it's Berosh, and the last two letters are added as a prefix to the next three letters of Bara. Instead of Bereshis Bara, it's Berosh Yisbara. And says the Rabbah, this is an example of a different way of reading the Torah, where the breaks between letters are in different places, and that spells out an entirely different work, and that's all the names of God. And then he throws another another grenade at our understanding by telling us that there is a great name of God, a name that is composed of 72 letters, and that is hinted in three verses that begin with Vayisah, Vayavo, Vayet, all of those three verses in Exodus chapter 14, all of them contain 72 letters. And if you line them up and then you read them as the first three or as the three successive letters of these three successive verses, you're going to spell out 72 different names of God, each one of them composed of three letters. What this means, I don't know. But what he's telling us is that there are dimensions of Torah that are so beyond us and even even he himself is kind of hinting at it in, in this secretive way, but it's, he, he illustrates it by providing a very deep insight. And he tells us, and therefore, because the Torah has all these dimensions, if you misspell one word of the Torah, the whole Torah is disqualified. I've been in a shul where they're reading from the Torah on Shabbos and they discover that one of the words, one of the letters is either it's missing a letter or the letter is, is not valid because it's part of it's chipped off. And right away they roll up the Torah scroll and find a different one. Come on. What's the big deal? Typos happen, right? Moreover, says the Ramban, very deep insight. Some words of the Torah you have the concept of chaserot and yeterot, which means missing and additional letters. Which means, we know, if you know a basic rudimentary Hebrew, there are the letters, which most often are just the consonants. 
And then you have the vowels. And how are Hebrew vowels written? Not in the form of letters, but in the form of nikudot. Various dots and dashes that go above and below the letters, sometimes even in the letters, that tell you how to, how to make, you know, the, the vowel sounds of a given word. However, it's not always like that. Sometimes the vowels appear in the form of letters. And he gives an example, the word osam, them. 39 times in the Torah, it's spelled aleph, vav, the vav is going to be the vowel, and then a saf, and then a mem. But sometimes it's spelled without the vav. And for us, it can appear to be totally random, totally arbitrary. The word is pronounced the same. It means the same thing, but someplace in the Torah it's written with a vowel in the form of a letter. And sometimes it's written without a vowel, and the vowels are only in the form of nikudot. So what happens if you take one word that says osam with a, with a vav, with the extra letter, and you take a second word that says osam without the vav, and you just swap it? You put the vav over there where it was not supposed to have the vav, it was supposed to have the invisible vowel, and you take it away from the place where the, the whole Torah is disqualified. Why? After all, the word spells the spell the same, uh, or it's pronounced the same way. It means the same thing. You didn't add or subtract letters, the same amount of letters in the Torah. I just took one from here and swapped it to there. So if we just read the Torah on a surface level, if we didn't understand the multidimensionality of the Torah, if we had no appreciation of all these levels and all these strata of meaning that are beyond us, we would say it doesn't make a difference. But because we realize that the whole Torah is names of God, there's a, a, an entire, uh, entirely different subtext of the whole Torah. Therefore, if I am taking out the vav here and I'm putting it there, I'm misspelling the name of God. Of course, that is a sacrilege. You need to have the precise spelling of all the parts of the divine messages to have the whole Torah to be considered the Torah of God. And that's why we're so meticulous about all the letters of the Torah. And the Rabban adds, he concludes, or he wraps up by revisiting the point that he spoke about earlier. When we speak about a divine Torah, heavenly Torah, a Torah of black fire on top of white fire, the Torah that preceded the world, that is referring to the Torah that contains nothing but the names of God. And therefore, says the Ramban, he concludes and he wraps up, when you have the Torah, you could read it the way we read it, and you could also read it the way the Torah was before creation, black fire on top of white fire, names of God. And Moshe got both of them. Moshe received the reading, the way it's done, he calls it the way of the reading of the mitzvos, the way we can understand it, the earthly Torah. But he was also given orally the other way of reading it. And he also knew how to spell out the names of God, the great name of God, and also how to divide up into the three letters as I hinted earlier, and as it is commonly used by the masters of the Kabbalah. And he concludes his piece by telling you, by the way, if you're looking for all the secrets in the Torah, my commentary, you ain't going to find it because I'm not going to tell you about it. Anyhow, that's how he ends his piece. But I want to kind of wrap it up, even though this is still all introductory. This insight is going to resolve a very obvious question. Our sages tell us that Moshe goes up to heaven, he gets the whole Torah. What do we mean the whole Torah? The whole Torah, all written Torah, from the first word of the Torah to the last word of the Torah. 
Well, isn't there a very important part of the Torah that talks about Moshe hitting a rock and suffering drastically as a result of that? Why would he hit the rock if, if he knows what the consequences are of hitting the rock? Well, here's the answer. Moshe goes up to heaven and he receives the heavenly variety of Torah, black fire on top of white fire, and he gets the other reading of it up to that point. And as he's unlocking more earthly elements of Torah, he's going to understand, of course, the, the, the higher version of the Torah, but also how to break it out, so to speak, into the lower version of Torah, into the earthly version of Torah. And therefore, he had no idea about the stories that were going to happen to him because he didn't get that variety of Torah until it actually happened. And God says, okay, now write it down in this fashion. And by the way, I want to add, the Talmud has a very interesting question about the final eight verses of the Torah. The final eight verses talk about the death and the burial and the eulogy of Moshe. Who wrote those verses? How can Moshe write it? How can Moshe write it and Moshe died? Is that true? It's not true. So according to one opinion in the Talmud, the book of Bavabasra, page 15a, it wasn't written by Moshe, it was written by Joshua. According to a second opinion of the Talmud, it was written by Moshe, but Moshe wrote it bidema, with dema. What does the word dema mean? So simply put, he wrote it with tears. He wrote it with tears. Why? Because it's not pleasant to write about your own death, your own demise, your own funeral, your own burial, your own eulogy. It's not a pleasant thing to write. So Moshe's emotional. And therefore, God says, write it, even though it didn't happen yet. But the Torah, of course, is predictive. It's a word of prophecy. And it can talk about things that have not yet actually happened. And therefore, Moshe's crying when he's writing about his death. That's a simple interpretation of this Talmud. Says the Gona Vilna. There's a different way to interpret this Talmud. The word dema also means confusion or a mumble-jumble, a mixture. What he's saying is like this. Moshe wrote down those final eight verses, but he didn't write it in the earthly version of that of the Torah. He wrote it in the heavenly version of the Torah, in the black fire on top of white fire version of the Torah. And that is a mixture, that is a mumble jumble, because you have to reorient those words to be able to understand it on a superficial level. And thus, both opinions of the Talmud are correct. Moshe wrote it and Joshua wrote it. It's just that Moshe wrote it in one version, and after it happened... Joshua wrote it in the second version. Thus concludes the Ramban and his explication on this very important question of the nature of Torah, the writing of the Torah, the authorship of the Torah, and the various kinds of Torah, so to speak, the heavenly Torah and the earthly Torah and their differences and their distinctions. Again, I think that if we're going to talk about this at length, which I hope to do, this is a very worthwhile introduction because it opens up these portals into all kinds of tantalizing questions that, please God, we will investigate at depth in the coming weeks and months. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. My email address is rabbiwolbygmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you, and I'm happy to take any questions of any sort and any variety.